Turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we'll be reading verses 5 through 11. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. God is at work bringing people to himself. And it's somewhat awkward because we don't know who he has chosen. Right? I mean, if we we knew who he had chosen, we could say, yeah, God is at work bringing people to himself, and here they are, and so we'll ignore everybody else, and we'll just work on them. But we don't know who they are. His will, his hidden counsels, are hidden counsels, which means we don't know them, we don't see them. But what we do know is very important. What we do know is that Christ has established his church to accomplish the work. God established his church to accomplish the work of bringing many people into glory. Now, Corinth was an important city that had been destroyed in a war with Rome, but was then rebuilt by Julius Caesar. So Corinth is where Paul is. And it was also a wicked city. Not just a destroyed and rebuilt city, but a terribly wicked city. It was filled with sexual immorality and other wickedness. In fact, it was uh, so known for its sexual sin that at that time, the term Corinthian companion was used as a euphemism for prostitute. So this is the, the degree to which Corinth was known as a city that was given over to sexual sin. The temples of Aphrodite in the city, promoted this terrible wickedness. Many, many uh, employees in those temples were employed as cult prostitutes. And so, some of the church members 
at Corinth, some of the people who joined this church, who became Christians, some of them had been fornicators, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, and homosexuals. And of course, that shouldn't be surprising to us, knowing what Corinth was. But it also shouldn't be surprising to us, knowing what we are, right? Now, God has been gracious, and he has called many people uh, out of this sort of terrible, terrible sin, living a life that is in utter rebellion against him. And that is miraculous, and a, and a very sweet, sweet thing. But he has also called some of us out of Christian families from a very young age and to a, a sweet faith, the faith of our parents, in such a way and so early that we're never given over to these, the utmost of these sins. And that's even sweeter because it prevents much pain and much sorrow if we never go off and sow our wild oats, as it's called among the Amish, or uh, learn to live a bit, as it might be said of those who go to college, or any number of other descriptions of turning away from the faith of our parents, and then, by God's grace, returning later, many of us. So, of such were some of you. When it gives this list of the, the terrible sins of Corinth, it says of such were some of you. The goal is not that we would be that and then would return from it. Right? The goal is that we would never be that. Here in the church, we're preaching, we're looking at the Word of God, and we're called, as children, you kids, are called to live by faith now. From this age. However old you are now. If you can hear me, you can understand me. The command to you is not to go off and become like the rest of Corinth and then repent and come back. Right? There's a lot of um, uh, excitement around the idea of somebody who was living this terrible life. And, And if you hear people give their testimonies, many people can give a testimony that they were living a life filled with terrible sin, rebellion, debauchery, drunkenness, carousing all of the fruit that are not of the Spirit, and you read that list, that there's the fruit of the Spirit list. You all have that one memorized, right? But you know there's another fruit that's not of the Spirit list that's right there too? So all of those things, and, and you, you read of somebody being saved from that list. I did this and that. I, you know, I was doing drugs, and I was sleeping around, and I was, I was never uh, working, and... I was doing everything I could to run away from God. I was refusing to obey Him. I was living a life apart from Him. 
And then he called me. And it's everybody's like, oh, wow. What a wonderful, sweet, amazing testimony. And then we make it into this glorious thing that like, you know, the true amazing testimonies are the testimonies of people who are living like that. Well, that is amazing that God would save somebody who is living like that, right? But what a sweet, sweet thing if you never give yourself over to that sin. If from a young age you follow the Lord. Do we want to be thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers? No. And the list that I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 6, it starts by saying the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it ends the same way, saying people who are these things won't get into heaven. So inheriting the kingdom of God means receiving the kingdom of God When you inherit something, you receive it. Maybe your your great aunt dies and leaves you an inheritance of a large sum of money. And you receive it. We want to receive the kingdom of heaven. We want to get into heaven. But there's this... Before we go too far into talking about Corinth, I just wanted to state very clearly, yes, it is miraculous. Yes, it is amazing. Yes, it is sweet. Yes, it is the work of God. It is a beautiful testimony to his power and, and the miraculous working of his spirit when people who, are in, who, who can be described as all of these things are saved, are brought out of that darkness. But it's also a very, very sweet thing when somebody can say, from my mother's breast I was brought up on the, on the word of the Lord. I don't ever remember a time where I had no faith. God saved me from a very young age. That's a, that's a sweet, sweet gift. And it saves you from much pain. And it saves your parents from a lot of pain and sorrow and fear. So now let's go into this thinking about the city of Corinth. If there was ever a city that was beyond hope for people to be saved in, Corinth would be that city. Yet here we see that God tells Paul that he has many people in the city. He has many people in the city. These are not people who are already Christians, because that's Paul's work, right? That's why he stays there an extra year and six months, it says, 
is to proclaim the gospel so and 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 many people are saved. So it's not like there's a bunch of hidden followers of God in the city of Corinth that Paul just has to go out and discover. They're all they're all hiding and they're, you know, it's like a game of hide and seek, find the Christians. This is not what God is saying when he says he has many people in the city. When he says, I have many people here, what he's saying to Paul is he is going to save them through Paul's work. How do we know? Well, because he says, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. What's the point of him going on speaking? So that people would hear. And we know that hearing is essential to believing, right? So God tells Paul he has many people in the city and to evangelize the lost, especially the Gentiles, and to bring them to Christ. In other words, what God is telling Paul is that he has many people in the city whom he has chosen to become his people. Who did God choose? Did he choose the people that you would expect him to choose? Well, the people that you would expect him to choose are who? They were in this passage. Who did you expect God would choose? The Jews. Right? The Jews. The Jews are who you would expect that God would choose. And indeed, some of the Jews are chosen. Some of the Jews do repent. What a sweet thing to read of the the contrast between the followers of God and those who refuse to follow God in the Jewish synagogue. And what you have is, you have the people of God being called out from unbelief, called out of the synagogue. You know, the, the great fear of so many people at that time was that they would, you remember when Jesus was going, that he heals the blind man and everyone's afraid that they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue, right? And here Paul is in Corinth. And what does he do? He leaves the synagogue and he, and, and he establishes a church. And where does he establish that church? Well, in Corinth, obviously, but did you notice what happens in the text? Where do they meet? Right next door to the synagogue. There's a house that they begin meeting in. And so you have this contrast between the true and the false church. And they're just, they're right next to each other. And the leader of the synagogue walks away from the synagogue. Why? To follow God. That's such a sweet, beautiful picture. In Ephesians 1, we read of God's choosing 
his people. Let me just read a few verses, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So what do we see there? When he says that he has many people in the city of Corinth, we begin to understand it more as we read about his sovereign will in election. As we read about his sovereign will, that his choosing was from when? Not just before you were born. Not just before your parents were born. Or their parents. Or their parents. Before the foundations of the world. Now that's crazy. Isn't it? But when you realize that it's from before the foundations of the world, you've entered into such a totally different realm of thinking than the way we normally think about it. You understand? I mean, we think in the here and the now. We think in the interactions of the the present. And God says, I have many people in this city. And we're going, well, I don't see them. And and God says, well, don't be afraid. Preach. Speak. Because I have many people in this city. And we're going, but everybody's on drugs. They're They're all debauched. They're all living in sin. They're all atrocious. We don't want to associate with any of them. There's only, a, and, and, and even the people in the synagogue don't want, to follow you and are reviling. And God says, no, you don't understand. I chose them before the foundations of the world. I predestined them in love to become what? Holy, blameless, This is not something that any of us can be described in, regardless of what your testimony is. If you've begun to follow Christ, you don't don't have the, it's not like there was a, you know, well, I I was always holy and blameless. There were some people who became Christians who sinned beforehand, but I was one of the people who was always holy and blameless. That's not the way it works. Everybody is a sinner. Some people were idolaters, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, the effeminate, the greedy. Some people were not. But regardless, all were sinners. And then when you begin to realize how differently God speaks of salvation, how differently he 
works. What, what, how different the picture really is when he begins to speak to Paul. Then all of a sudden, you're left going, okay, I, I guess if he did it that long ago, if he chose them that long ago, that begins to make sense of this, of my salvation. That begins to make sense of how my neighbor could be saved. That begins to make sense of this church being established in the middle of Corinth, when even the Jews won't listen. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's what Paul writes to these Corinthians, to the church at Corinth. Now, even these people that Paul is writing to, that God chose before the foundation of the world, that, that were established as a church in the heart of the, the dark city of Corinth, even they had difficulty in fighting against numerous sins. And it turns out that they especially had difficulty fighting against the sins that were common in their city. Paul has to write to warn them against visiting prostitutes in 1 Corinthians 6.15. And then he writes and urges them the husbands and the wives, to make love, on the other hand. Seven, verses three and four. And then he urges them to get married and not to divorce. And if you think about the city of Corinth, it's like, you know, kind of makes sense that the church there would need to hear that. Those things. Given how messed up the city is and what the culture is that they're in and everything that they're surrounded by, you know, you just have to talk to the things that are going on there. Because that's the things that the church is dealing with. And so now here we are, and we live in Cincinnati. And what is Cincinnati? Well, Cincinnati is a city. And it has its own sort of identity, right? It's very different than Indianapolis, where I lived last. What is its identity? Well, in America, we can talk about the the identity, the the culture of America as a whole, and and many things that you could say about America would be true of Cincinnati as well. Sexual immorality is a problem everywhere, and so every church in every city needs to be addressing sexual immorality today, especially today. Today. Not that this message ever goes out of style, you understand. But especially today. Because 
Just like Paul especially had to deal with it in the church of Corinth where there were Corinthian companions, right? So he's dealing with, especially with the, the needs, the problems, the sins and temptations that the church in Corinth faced because they were Corinthians, because they lived in Corinth. And so then, here we are, and we're in Cincinnati, and if you, want to, if you want to be seeing Cincinnatians saved, you're going to have to know not just the gospel, generically, right? But you're going to have to know the gospel as it needs to be taught, as it needs to be preached, as it needs to be proclaimed, to people in Cincinnati. That doesn't mean that there's somehow some sort of difference that the gospel that's preached here is different than the gospel that's preached. There's, no, there's, there's one gospel, right? There's one message of hope, of salvation. There's, there's one good news, and the good news is that Jesus Christ came, that he died, for our sins, and that God raised him up again. And so there's hope for us to be reconciled to God. It's very simple. It's a simple good news. And yet, so much of preaching, so much of teaching, so much of talking to our neighbors is about connecting that. Right? It's, it's about connecting that to what's going on in their life. It's, it's about connecting it to what they're talking about, what they've read. It's about connecting it to the sins that they are given over to. And that's why I say, yeah, I mean, where you are, here we are in Cincinnati, where you are makes a difference. This is why the letter that Paul writes to the church of Corinth is very different than the letter that he writes to the church at Ephesus. At one point, the church in Corinth had gotten so filled up with sexual confusion that its members are proud about how open-minded they are concerning sexual sin. Can you see that happening in America today? being proud about how open-minded you are about sin. As a matter of fact, I have seen that in churches. So, so Corinth is a particularly helpful place for us to think about because of how central sexual sin is in America today, in thinking about what Paul does while he's there, and thinking about how he writes to the church there, and... What I, want, what I want us to remember today is that it's helpful because it gives us hope that people here now today can be saved. That it doesn't have anything to do with what their sins are or how deep they are into sin or how many Christians there already are here or whether they were raised up in a Christian home, or whether they were... No, it doesn't have anything to do with that. What does it have to do with? 
before the foundations of the world, God set apart a people for himself. And what he says to Paul is, I have many people here. So don't be afraid. And isn't that encouraging? Paul, does Paul ever look afraid? I mean, not when you're reading Acts. <laughs> when you read his letters and he's going, pray that I'll be bold. You're, you're like, oh, I'm getting a different picture here now. And then when you read this one little thing, all of a sudden, here you are in Acts, and God says to him, don't be afraid. And it's really, uh, it's confusing. That if, you, if, the, if you're reading the NASB, there's these two little words added in italics, and it says, any longer. And I've been on this, I've, I've had this kind of explanation before. You know that the words that are in italics are not really there in the text. They're added by the translator, but typically they're added by the translator in order to communicate some other underlying thing that's, that's implied by the Greek. Okay? And so what you're seeing there is uh, basically don't don't being afraid. You see, stop being afraid. Because there's the, the tense that you're dealing with. It's, it, and so that's why they add in this any longer. Because it's clear that Paul actually is afraid. And how many of you can sympathize with Paul? You're, you're like, never thought I'd have to sympathize with Paul. Well, let's put it this way. Paul sympathizes with you. And Christ sympathizes with you. And God stoops down. I mean, to to telling you, don't be afraid. Don't keep being afraid. And so Paul stays and he preaches, and the church is established. And yeah, it's, it's a church with problems. And Paul has to rebuke them for allowing and promoting sexual sin. And then from afar, he excommunicates a man and casts this man out of the church who is being immoral with his stepmother. All this sexual sin and confusion also showed up in the church in other ways, too. Now, in our minds, I don't think that we typically connect these things, but let's just say we're talking about men and women and their relationships and what it means to be a man and a woman and how you're supposed to live as a man and a woman, and all of a sudden Paul's talking about how women were not being subordinate in the church or to their own husbands at home, about how they were seeking attention with their behavior rather than looking to honor God. And it's like, well, you know what? That's connected, isn't it? 
That's a related sin. Now, I bring that up because I just heard about a man, an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, who confessed to committing adultery and was removed from his position as elder. And it's a very, very sad, sad thing. And when you think about sexual sin, you, you, you may get the impression that, that sexual sin relates to men only, that men who are just can't control their urges and are just dirty pigs. And if you, if you get that impression... You've, you've forgotten what the city of Corinth was actually like. You've forgotten what the church at Corinth actually needed to be taught. You've forgotten how related sexual sin really is, how intertwined it really is. And so, this man's sin is very, very sad. It's very, very wicked. It is very damaging to the church. Not just his church, but the church of Jesus Christ. But sexual sin and confusion has application beyond don't be driven by your base earthly urges men, right? And everybody is okay with me saying that to the men. Nobody has any problem with me condemning toxic masculinity, for example, right? But Paul goes beyond that and begins addressing the women as well. And immediately what he begins to talk about is what submission looks like and how they're not doing it. In other words, it's almost as fundamental. Women not wanting to be submissive as it is men wanting to just follow whatever their urges happen to be. And that's only touching on the sexual sins that you see being addressed. If there was ever a church that was beyond hope for being used by God to bring people into his kingdom, the church at Corinth would be a good candidate. If you think that it's hopeless that there would ever be people saved in a city like Corinth. It's especially hopeless that a city like Corinth with the church, like the church that was in Corinth, would ever be effective in bringing people to Christ. 
It's like a double whammy. You know what I'm saying? It's bad enough that the city is like that, but then you put a church that unhealthy in a city that bad, and what could you ever expect God to do? But from the beginning, before the, before the letter to Corinth is written, before anything, you know, Paul's just gotten there and the Jews are, the Jews are saying, forget this. And God says, I have many people in this city. First Timothy 3. 15, Paul writes, and he says, In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is what the church at Corinth is called to be. This is what everybody in the church at Corinth, now he's writing to Timothy, right, in this case, but you understand this is what we're to be. We, we read these instructions. We find out how we're supposed to be as a church in Cincinnati. Is there hope? Yes, there's hope. God has many people. Many people. And where else do we see that? Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The problem isn't Corinth. I mean, yes, Corinth is a problem. The problem isn't the church at Corinth, although that is a problem too. The problem is that there's the the problem is not, rather, that there's nobody there who can be saved. That's what I'm getting at. Or that it's too unhealthy, or that the church is too unhealthy. The problem is, there's a lot of harvest, but the laborers are few. And so Paul arrives, and is he few? (laughs) Yeah. But by the time he leaves, there's a church. There's a church. And isn't that sweet? Isn't that encouraging that even in the church, I mean, even in the city of Corinth, even in, a, even in a synagogue like the one that was there, where Paul has to wipe the dust off of his feet as he leaves, that God establishes his church. And what does he do through his church? He calls many sons to glory. And he raises up workers for the harvest.
And so, we look forward and we, we have those same problems, right? We have those same challenges. We live in the, in the midst of the same sort of mess. And you can either look at it like, well, there's no hope that God could really establish a strong church in Cincinnati. I mean, look at what it's like. Even the people who are Christians don't really believe in the doctrine of the church in the first place. Or, you can believe that God chose his people before the foundations of the world. And not just from Christian families, but from among the effeminate, from among the homosexuals, from among the idolaters, the adulterers. Of such were some of you. And so we will see, by faith, God's work going forward. Here, now, wherever we are planted, doing his work. And he saves his people without fail. Let's pray.